So as we finish this up, um, last week we looked at the, the end of chapter 12, and Paul was really just laying out his last kind of encouragement to the church in Corinth. He was really reaffirming his love for them. Um, this is a hard letter, right? It's, it's hard, not, not so much to understand, but it's hard for us, uh, or for, for Paul rather, to be speaking such blunt and harsh things to a church that he clearly loves, right? But the Corinthians and Paul had a very tense relationship, a very challenging relationship. There's no question about that. Uh, there was a lot of frustration on both sides. And, and yet Paul really does love these people. And he wants them to love and follow Jesus. And that's becoming so clear as we get through the, the last bits of this, this book. Um, last week, he talked about how he loves them. And he gave them several key markers of his love for them that flow from the heart of Christ. Uh, he talked about how he's, he's patient with them because love is patient and Jesus is ultimately patient with us. He talks about his pursuit of them, that he's not going to just leave them uh, to their own devices, but he's caring for them enough to keep coming back to them. He's giving to them. He's not taking from them. He, he's building them up, not tearing them down. And then he concluded the, the, we concluded last week with this idea of mourning, where Paul is actually sorrowful over the issue of their sin. He wants them to turn the corner and repent and become the, the followers of Jesus that we all ought to be, which is not perfect people, but repentant people. People who are willing to say, you know, I'm wrong. I'm sorry. Jesus, forgive me for those sins. That's what Paul wants for, for the Corinthians. That's what ultimately he wants for us and that Jesus wants for us as well. So, so as we get into chapter 13, as I read this, I, I just kept coming back to this particular a phrase from the Chronicles of Narnia. If you're familiar with that series, it's a children's series by C.S. Lewis. And, um, you know, it's kind of a fantasy type of, type of story. I'm sure many of you have read it or are familiar with it. But in the last book, they, um, all the main characters get to uh, ba- basically the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, and they're, they're in this perfect place. Um, but as they're exploring it, as they continue to learn more and more about this place, um, there's a phrase that just continually kept coming back throughout that book. And it was this, it's further up and further in. Keep, keep coming, keep going, further and further. And one of the characters, um, when he gets there, he says this, he says, I've, I've come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here this is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. And then he's told, come further up, come further in. And that phrase, further up and further in, really does, I think, get us to the heart of what Paul's calling on the Corinthians to do. Keep growing. Keep coming closer to Jesus. Keep getting there. And, and here's the reality. Um, to do that, it requires that we are confronted by things that are not of Christ in our lives. It, it requires us to become face-to-face with the, the realities of our sin, the realities of our foolishness, and to, to bring those things to Jesus, right? It, 
but it, but it requires us to be confronted. And so while Paul is uh, absolutely doing um, the loving thing here, he's also doing a confrontational thing. He's calling them onward and upward. He's calling them to deeper love and obedience for Jesus because that really is what love does. And that's what God does for us. The truth is that Jesus loves us too much to let us stay in our sin and to continue in our foolishness. He loves us too much for that. And so he puts people in our lives and he gives us his word and he allows us to be confronted by the things that are not of him in our lives. And and that's what we're going to see Paul do. He's going to conclude this thing with some pretty direct confrontation. And so let's look at it. Let's go into verse 1. Uh, really, 1 through 4 is going to set up the, the confrontation here. Here's what Paul says. He says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while I'm, while I'm absent, as I did when I was present on my second visit that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. All right, so this is interesting. Um, Paul has already established in the prior chapter, back in verse 14, that he's going to come back for a third visit. Uh, He's been to to Corinth twice. The first, he was planting the church. The second, we don't really know exactly on where the timeline it falls, but it was obviously sometime before this letter. And uh, the second visit was a painful visit. Paul referred to it as a sorrowful visit a visit where he had to really confront them about their sin. And there were some really difficult things going on in that church that Paul had to, had to address, and it wasn't pleasant. So actually at the beginning of this letter, way back at the beginning, um, there was a point where Paul was saying to the Corinthians, you know, that last visit, that was rough. And so for your sake, I've delayed coming back to you. Now he's like, I, I just have stayed away because I think there just needs to be some time and healing. So now he's gotten to the end of this rather lengthy letter. This is one of the longest letters that Paul wrote. Um, and this letter, and now at the end, he's like, okay, I am going to come back and visit you for a third time. But he does this strange thing in verse 1. He quotes from Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, though he doesn't actually say he's quoting from it. He does quote, and he says, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So it's interesting that he quotes that um, because the context of Deuteronomy 19.15 is uh, talking about the law, the law system, the court of law, where somebody's not going to be convicted of a crime unless there's corroboration from two or three witnesses. Now here, he's not talking about any legal issues. What he's talking about is he's going to essentially reserve his judgment on the church in Corinth until he comes back a third time to decide whether or not there is true 
uh, repentance and, uh, and dealing with the sin that he addressed in his second visit. He's basically expressing to them, uh, there's a biblical principle of waiting it out, just kind of weighing the balance, right? And seeing where things land. Um, and he says, I'm, I'm not going to ultimately come to a decision about what to do with you guys until I show up for the third time. Um, I think it's, no, it's important to notice that Paul does not quote Deuteronomy by saying, as it's written, and then say, using the quote. When he does that in other places in the scripture, he's using that passage in an authoritative way. Here, he's quoting the principle. He's not so much using it as an authoritative issue that he, has to, that he has to apply the scriptures to. Um, he's just giving them an idea that, hey, I've been with you twice. It's been a train wreck both times. The third time is really going to seal the deal and, and help me decide what I need to do. But what he's doing ultimately is he's going to be calling them away from sin to Jesus, right? And, and so he's going to confront it head on. And here's the thing. This is amazing. Jesus actually does use people in our lives to help us see our sinfulness. Because so often sin, sin in our lives is blind to us. We have blind spots. We don't see all the, the ways in which we fail. So God can put other people in our lives to actually help us do that. That's what Paul's going to be used by God to do. And, and yet that's not just Paul's role. That's also our role to help others. But let's be, let's be very careful with that, right? Like we need to remember what Jesus says about the plank and the speck. He says, if you have a brother who's got a speck of sawdust in their eye, you're, you might be tempted to help them get that sawdust out of their eye. But if you do that while you've got this giant log hanging out of your own eye, this big plank, two by four thing sticking out, you're, he says, you're not going to be able to help them do that. So, so Jesus says, here's what you do. It's interesting that he doesn't say, okay, if you've got a plank in your eye, you just got to walk away, leave it alone. Don't, don't go anywhere near that guy with the speck. No, he actually says, Here's what you do. You take the plank out of your own eye so that you can see clearly to help your brother with the speck in his. There's actually a place for us to to see some flaw or sinfulness in another person and use that as an opportunity to draw our hearts to Jesus and go, okay, I've got to assess this. Am I in a place that I can help them? Or am I in a place that's just as messed up or worse than they are that will then propel me to, to repentance and change so that I can be in a place to help them. And Paul's obviously dealing with that and he's, he's worked through that and he's walking with the Lord and he's in a position where he can help them. So as we get into verse 3 and 4, then he, he starts to talk through how this confrontation over sin is actually how Jesus is going to help them mature. Look at what it says. He says, since, uh, well, we'll start at the second half of verse three, the, the start of the new sentence. He says, he is not weak in dealing with you, speaking of Jesus here, but he is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. So here's what Paul says. He says that confrontation 
Not like, by confrontation, I don't mean we have to be jerks about everything, right? That's not what I mean. But you got to be direct and bring things out, right? You got you to address issues, particularly as they're related to sin issues that are keeping people from drawing closer to Christ. So this confrontation that, that Paul's bringing out to the church in Corinth is actually how Jesus is going to show his strength among them. Look at the logic he uses. He says, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. So there's, he says, Jesus is going to show his power among you. And here's why. For he was crucified in weakness. So Jesus lived in our weakness as he died in our place on the cross. He did embrace weakness. But Paul goes on to say that Christ is no longer in that state of weakness because he was raised from the dead by the power of God. So now Christ is ruling and reigning in in glory um, and he is in charge and he is not, not weak any longer. So he's able to then work in us in, in his strength. And then the third thing he says here is that as we live in Christ then, then we might be weak. Yes, we may, we may be weak people. Paul acknowledges his weakness all throughout chapters 11 and 12, right? That's his whole thing is his weakness. We're weak, but Christ uses his strength through us. He uses his strength to help others through the weakness that we possess. Here's the thing. None of us like confrontation, right? It's, it's uncomfortable. No one likes to be called out for anything. It, it ultimately, we know that if we are trying to do the con- confronting, it, it risks losing people that we love. We, we may be afraid that, okay, if I say this to them, they may not be my friend anymore or they may not want to see me. But if we really do love people, if we really love them, we need to be willing to address the sins that we see in their lives. And again, this isn't like in a hypocritical way. We've got the plank and speck thing we've got to keep in front of us, right? It's not about hypocrisy. It's not about saying that you're worse than me. But if we really love someone and we see some major flaw in their life that's keeping them from growth in Christ. It's the loving thing to do to bring that up in the context, like we said last week, in the context of safety, in the context of I'm not, I'm not like criticizing you or judging you or hurting you. I'm, I'm just trying to draw this out in front of you so that it can be dealt with. We, we need to, to be willing to, to do that, even in, in some context, right? It's not not every place is the appropriate place to do that. Not every context is the right avenue for that to happen. But we need to be willing to address the, the, the blind spots that other people have. And we need to then, on the other side, be receptive as people do that for us. Let's not forget that. Because we're not sinless, ever. And so it's a reciprocation. It's a, we, we can help them and they can help us. And that's what gospel community does. It's, it brings out people to, to that reality of, here's your sin. It's unpleasant. Let's bring it to Jesus. And by the way, you're free to, to do that for me too, because we all need this. 
God loves us too much to leave us in our sin. And so he puts people in our lives to help us see it. And I, I think that's just, it's really important. We, we don't like it. <laughs> Who does? Right? Who wants that? But, but if we have hearts that beat after Christ, we will we'll receive it. We should receive it. Um, sin is not some little thing that we can just compartmentalize and put over to the side. It really is going to, to take us out. It's going to damage us. It's going to harm everyone around us. Sin ultimately costs Jesus his very life. And so we don't want the people we love to be living in clear, unrepentant sin. And I think that's the key, right? It's, it's all about repentance or unrepentance. This is, where the, this is where the dividing line has to be drawn because if somebody is a sinner or is doing something sinful and that person recognizes that and brings that to Christ for forgiveness, then that's, that's where it needs to go, right? We don't need to pile on and make this thing so much worse than it already was. We, we need to be grateful for the work of Christ in showing people their sin and drawing them to repentance. But what we're talking about is if we're seeing a, a professing Christian live in absolute unrepentance, we need to love them enough to call them out on that. And we need to be receptive in our own lives as there are seasons where we may live in unrepentance. So Paul clearly confronts them. This is not a pleasant thing, but it's a necessary thing. And he, he's doing it because he loves them, right? We have to remember what we saw last week. Last week established that Paul loves these people. It's not that he, he has no ill will towards them at all. In fact, he has nothing but their best intentions at heart. All right. So let's keep going here. First, he, he confronts them. Now we're going to look here at verse 5 and 6. Look at what it says. He says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. So here's where Paul goes. First, he confronts them and says, listen, I'm coming for a third time. We're going to make sure that this stuff has been dealt with or, or else I'm, I'm really going to have to lay down my apostolic authority in your life. That's where, that's where he's, he's at. And I don't exactly know what that would look like. I don't exactly know what that means. But Paul was clearly thinking some sort of disciplinary measure to help root out the unbelievers from the believers in that church. I don't really know. But he goes on from there uh, to, to call them to something, to challenge them to do something else. And it's in verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. He, he calls them to examine themselves to see if they really are followers of Jesus. You know, this is not something we often do in our own lives, it's not something we often call people to do. Um, and I think largely it, it's okay if it's not overly un- imbalanced, right? It's, it's, it's good for us to focus away from ourselves and focus on the objective work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. 
that's obviously right to do. But, but I think evangelicalism has sort of overly turned this, this lopsided thing to say, well, we should never look at our own hearts. Let's just look at what Jesus did for us and that's all we have to do. And well, that's not what Paul tells them to do, right? Clearly, he points them to the objective realities of the gospel. He just said that Jesus was crucified in weakness and raised by the power of God. That's the objective truths of the gospel. He wants them to focus on those things. And then he turns them inward to say, look at yourselves too. How about yourselves? It's, it's, it's simply Paul saying to them, here's what you have to do. You've got to ask yourself a question. Is Jesus living and active in my life? That's the question he wants them to ask. Is Jesus living and active in my life? And if so, then biblically speaking, as we see from the teachings of Christ himself, there should be fruit that demonstrates that. We know that we're not saved by works, right? Let's not get things twisted around. We're not saying that you have to be a a perfect person to be saved. No, no, Jesus is perfect for you, right? He applies his righteousness to you. All that's true. And yet the reality is that as Christ changes us and works in us and lives in us, there is fruit that is born in our lives. Where's the fruit? Paul's saying, look at your lives, examine yourselves, test yourselves to see if Jesus Christ is in you. Is he actually active and working in your life? And if so, where is the fruit to be found? And I think he's specifically calling this out because the Corinthians in particular are unrepentant people, largely. Not everyone, but this church had a huge bunch of problems and there were a lot of people that were just contending to stay in their sin rather than deal with it. And so, yeah, I think it's a valid question to go, hmm, you're sinning like we all do, but you don't seem to have any remorse. That's not a fruit of Christianity. You don't seem to have any desire to go to the cross for forgiveness. That's definitely not a marker of someone who has Jesus in them. So it's not absolutely crazy for Paul to say, maybe you should look at yourself a little bit here. Maybe you should ask yourself, is my heart stone cold dead to Jesus? Or is he alive in my heart? Do I have remorse over my sins or am I making excuses for them? And I think what Paul's getting at here is this, if, if, the answer is no, there's nothing there. Then we need to quit calling ourselves Christians and then we need to repent and believe the gospel. We need to quit assuring ourselves of something that isn't real. I think that's where he's trying to get them to. is to say, listen, if there's nothing there, if you're just dead inside to Christ, You need to stop pretending you're a follower of Jesus and actually start becoming one by believing the gospel for you, for your heart. And and the truth is that that the the false teachers, these super apostles that we've we've encountered through this letter, um, had really caused a huge amount of confusion in this church. It was confusion over right doctrines. It was confusion over the truth of what Christ did for them. 
And there was even some confusion about their own salvation. And so Paul is stepping in here to help them by doing the loving thing, by pushing them, challenging them towards the assurance that God has saved them through Jesus and has saved us through Jesus. Or if he hasn't, then we're still separated from him and then need to come to him for grace. I think um, a lot of people have made note of this over the years that Corinth and modern day America, or I would say even beyond that, just the Western culture of the world is a lot more similar than probably some of the other books in the Bible. The, the Corinthians and, the, uh, and modern day Americans are very similar. Like there's just, there's, if you study the cultures, it's very amazing. And uh, so D.A. Carson points this out. He says that there are millions of professing believers in North America today to say nothing of everywhere else, who at some point entered into some shallow commitment to Christianity, but who, if pressed, would uh, have to be, would, would be forced rather to admit that they don't love holiness, they don't pray, they don't hate their sin, they don't walk humbly with God. And his point is this, that they stand, they stand, we, we may some of us may fall into this category, right? They stand in the same danger that the Corinthians stand in. And Paul's warning applies to them as much as to the Corinthian readers of this letter. We need to examine our hearts, and not, not in a way that makes us question every little thing, right? It, it's, 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 a, it's a touchy thing, right? Because you can't assume you're not a Christian just because you stumble into a sin, the question, I think, has to ultimately come down to, where's the heart motivation? Do you hate that you stumbled into that sin and want to bring that out to Jesus? Well, that's an indication you're a follower of Christ. If you're not in that place and you're sinning and you're like, I'm enjoying every second of it, that's a different situation. I think we just got to assess those things. And that's where Paul's trying to help them do. All right, let's keep going here. Verse 7 through 10. He says, but we pray to God that you may do no wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we're glad when we're weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. I love this. Here's where Paul goes. Paul knows fundamentally that he cannot change the Corinthians, but Jesus can. He knows he can't bully them into following Jesus. He knows he can't just shame them into following Jesus. He knows he can't just throw accusations at them and they're going to magically want to be Christians. He knows he has no power in himself to change their hearts. But Jesus does have that power. And so what does he do? Where does he go? It's, it's amazing in verse 7. He says, But we pray to God that you may do no wrong. And then he says again in verse um, uh, verse 9, at the end of verse 9, he says, your restoration is what we pray for. 
The context of this little paragraph is that Paul's praying for them. Even while he's away from them, he's getting ready to come to them for a third time, but he's away from them now. So he is, in the meantime, he is praying for God to change their hearts. He's praying for their growth. That's what he means by that you may do no wrong. He's, I don't think he's suggesting that they'll ever be perfectly sinless, right? But he's suggesting here that that God can begin to grow them and mature them into Christ. He prays ultimately for their repentance and their restoration to Jesus. I, I think we way underestimate the, the importance of this kind of thing. I, I think so often we believe that if I just say the right thing or point them to the right passage or show them the, just the right things that they can, that they'll, that, they'll be, that they'll be fixed. And we're putting all that on us to do it. And what I've learned, and, and I've seen this just demonstrated over and over again in, in the ministry here, as well as just through my whole life, that Jesus Christ does answer prayers. And he has the power to change people. There have been so many times that, that I've been, praying for people or the elders have gathered together to pray and we're going, we have nothing that we can do to change anything about this situation. We, we can't do it. So we take it to Jesus and you know what? He actually can and does and has. I've seen it many times. Where he, where, and this is where Paul goes. He's, he's not just hoping that his words in this letter will get to their hearts and make them better, but he actually goes before the throne of grace on their behalf. And it's amazing that Paul does this because the Corinthians and Paul had such a horrible relationship. (laughs) It was like so just brutal, back and forth, arguing and fighting and you know, this letter is just so clear, clear that there's this tension between them. And like I said last week, man, it would be so easy for Paul to just walk away from these people and say, you know what, you guys have rejected me. I'm good. I'll leave. You guys can just go about your life. He could have done that. And yet he doesn't, right? He continues to pursue them and he continues to bring them before the Lord in prayer. And I think this really does get to the heart of what Jesus means when he says to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I don't think the Corinthians were Paul's enemies in the sense that we think of that word. But it's clear that they had some real serious issues with Paul. And it is clear that they were really a nuisance towards him and were pestering him. And possibly you could go so far as to say they were persecuting him in a sense, right? I don't want to overstate that. But I think that the same heart that Jesus wants from us as we pray for our enemies is what Paul's demonstrating for these Corinthians. Like they don't deserve Paul's love at all. They they don't, just like we don't deserve Jesus's love at all. But Paul nonetheless brings them to Christ in prayer. And it's only God's power that can change them. He knows that, so that's why he's praying for it. And notice what he says here in verse 10. He says, For these reasons I'm writing to you while I'm away, so that when I come, 
when I'm with you again, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that Christ gave me. (laughs) He's like, here's what I want. I want to show up to Corinth. I want you all to have responded in faith to the gospel and repent of your sins so that when I, can, when I come to you, we get to celebrate God's work in your life and I don't have to be tough on you. That's what Paul wants. He knows he can't get them there by just merely writing to them. He has to pray for them too. All right, so let's go. Last section here. This is, these are, again, verses that we tend to just sort of rush past and we don't stop and think about them. So we're going to take some time to just slow down and talk about them. Verse 11, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You know, this final sign-off from Paul, again, these are sort of like, in all of Paul's letters, you kind of brush past the first couple verses because it's like boilerplate, here's Paul talking to these people. And then these kind of like sign-offs, we sort of brush past them too. Um, But what Paul's saying here is really important and also a bit surprising. He calls them specifically to five things, to do five things as he's he's, um, away from them. Those five things, as we read them, are this. Rejoice, be restored to each other, comfort one another, agree with each other, and live in peace with one another. I think that's vital to understand in the whole context of the Pauline relationship to to the Corinthians, is that the Corinthians' major problem was unity. They were not together. They were divided. They were separated. They didn't want to be together. And it's, notice, it's, it's, it's of note to see that the, that the four, four of the five things that he just calls them to, and I guess you could say maybe five of the six things if you count the holy kiss one here, um, which, you know, COVID, you guys can't do that, sorry. Um, we're going to just, we'll love that, all right. Uh, but, but that was a cultural thing, right? It's uh, greet, greeting each other. It's like the handshake. It's the hug. So if you count that in one of the commands, here you got five out of six things that all have to do with their relationships to each other. Their unity. Being restored to a right relationship. Comforting each other. You can't comfort someone you hate. You comfort people you love. You agree with each other as you live in unity. You live in peace. You greet each other with this, with this greeting. Right? That's, that's camaraderie and love that's being expressed there. But the very first thing he says is very interesting. It's just one word. Rejoice. Paul has just taken, raked these guys over the coals. (laughs) He has spent 13 chapters of our Bible just tearing into these people 
And if you count the 16 or so chapters of 1 Corinthians, you got a lot of chapters where Paul is just hammering them. And yet he says, don't, don't be bummed out about this, you guys. Rejoice. Rejoice. It gets down to the very heart of what Paul's been trying to do this whole time, which is he wants them to find their joy in Jesus. He wants them to know the relief that comes through repentance and forgiveness. There is no greater thing to lead us, lead our hearts to celebration and joy than to know that we are right with God in and through repentance. Paul wants them to rejoice. They can't rejoice while they're living in their sinfulness. They have to get to Jesus to experience that joy. And then as they do that, the rest of these things begin to fall into place, right? These, these things about unity and love and care for each other, those begin to fall into place as we find our joy in the Lord. He wants them to stand together, but he wants them to stand together unified in Christ, having experienced the refreshment of the Holy Spirit as they come to him for forgiveness. And, and it's amazing also to notice here that Paul says in verse 14, the final verse, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, so that would be the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So here's our Trinitarian God, our one God and three persons right here on display. And he says they will... He, that this God, this, the grace that flows from Jesus, the love of God the Father, the fellowship of the Spirit, be with you all. What he's doing is he's assuring them that as they pursue Christ, Christ is actually with them. He's among them. He is working these things in them. And I, I think it's, it's easy to to wonder sometimes whether Paul was just super frustrated with these people or if he just or if he just disliked them you know it would be so understandable to see that he just doesn't like them they don't seem very likable but man you can really feel the love in this passage as you conclude this chapter it's so obvious that Paul really does love these men and women deeply he loves them because Christ loves them and this really does draw us back to the very outcome of a gospel-centered life, which is unity and love in him. Paul is, is calling this church further up and further in. And I think it does really start to get down to what Jesus means when he teaches us to pray. He tells us to pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, what, what Jesus is telling us to pray there is, is this, what you're like, make us like. Your will be done here as it is there. What you're like, make us like. That's further up and further in. We all have room to grow. We do. We just need to keep 
Keep going. Keep getting deeper. Keep pursuing the Lord Jesus. And he will actually be with us as we do. That's wonderful news. Let's pray together. You guys, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have loved us, that you have extended the grace to us through, through your son Jesus, that you have provided us with the fellowship through the spirit that we need. We see this text here in front of us that shows us your work in and among us. And we pray that as we continue to go about our, our day-to-day, that our hearts would just continuously be drawn back to these things, be drawn back to you. And we pray that you would do these things among us in Jesus' name. Amen.